Hello everyone and welcome to this uh, time for a Dharma talk. And today um, I want to uh, bring forth a teachings of the Buddha which is timeless teaching for our society. And that as in our society, in our world, maybe in many countries around the world, and down through the ages, there have been people who consider themselves superior to other people. And, um, and lots of conflict arises from that, and lots of inequities arise from that. People are superior, will have uh, greater access to wealth and power and status and all kinds of things. And uh, it was the same way in the time of the Buddha. And in the time of the Buddha, there was a particular, we might call class of people. Uh, some people considered, use the word caste in relationship to them, that um, were known as the Brahmins. And the Brahmins, at least some of the Brahmins at the time of the Buddha, thought of themselves as superior to others, to be the only ones who were uh, somehow um, in the way that the universe was created, or the world was created, that they were somehow the only ones who were really pure, really um, uh, came from the divine, in the, the, the divine source of life, in a way that was superior to every other form of life. And they should be treated that way and should be treated with respect and with power and with a sense of pu- that they were pure and, uh, than everybody else. And, um, and uh, what we find is the Buddha, uh, who is often called, the, sometimes called a peaceful sage, uh, was ver- very definitive in undermining or not standing for this kind of teaching, that uh, he was uh, um, uh, very strong and direct to oppose this kind of idea. It wasn't that he was accepting of everything or was sat in the background, just let these things go along without addressing it, that he was very, uh, he addressed it very forcefully, I would say, um, especially when people came to him and asked him about it, especially when the Brahmins came to ask him about it. And um, so I wanted to read first uh, uh, a passage where uh, the Brahmin, Brahmin is being quoted uh, for um, claiming that they are, you know, the best. Um, the... Um, Sorry, I lost my page that I prepared here. Here, uh, someone comes to the Buddha, for example, a Brahmin, and said, Master Gotama, the Brahmins say thus, Brahmins are the highest caste. Those of any other caste are inferior. 
Brahmins are the fairest caste. Those of any other caste are dark. Only Brahmins are purified, not non-Brahmins. Brahmins alone are the sons of Brahma, the offspring of Brahma, the great Brahma who somehow, the beginning of life, born of his mouth, born of Brahma, created by Brahma, heirs to Brahma. So that's the claim. So it's a pretty confident, bold thing to say. And um, and so people would come to the Buddha and make this claim. And uh, in this case, they said to the Buddha afterwards, what do you think of this? And in the sutta, that in the Majjama Sutta number 93, where I quoted from, uh, he goes through a whole series of arguments uh, undermining that statement. And uh, the person who's asking him, uh, making this, asking this question, just won't accept any of the Buddha's arguments. And the Buddha just keeps going and going and going and um, uh, uh, opposing or undermining the argument that it's, uh, that, uh, uh, it's by their birth that they are born Brahmins. It's by um, their purity. It's by their um, all kinds of things. And so he just kind of step by step goes through it all. But there's one uh, sutta which is, um, I think, it's very. It's a, I think it's a beautiful sutta. It's mostly poetry, called the Vasetta Sutta. It's number ninety-eight in this middle-length discourse. And uh, this issue of uh, caste superiority of some people is a big theme in the nineties. In the number of these suttas in the nineties, in the middle-length discourses, and this one is ninety-eight. And uh, and here, the um, two Brahmin students who are extremely learned in the Brahmanical lore and know all the Brahmanical texts and histories and everything. And, um, and so, um, uh, one of them says that... Um, um, uh, they, they ask themselves a question, um, how is one a Brahmin? And uh, one student says, when one is well born on both maternal and paternal sides of pure descent as far back as the seventh generation of ancestors, unassailable and impeccable with respect to birth, then one is a Brahmin. So it's really a matter of birth. How you're born makes you a Brahmin. And if you have this pure descent from seven generations and maybe before that from Brahma, the god Brahma himself, then you get to claim the superiority. Um, then one is a Brahmin. Now the other student, his name is Vasetta, and that's the name of the sutta, it's the Vasetta Sutta. Uh, he has a different point of view. He says, when one is... When one is of good behavior and proficient in the observances, then one is a Brahmin. So what makes a Brahmin is their behavior, when their behavior is ethical, and to be a Brahmin, maybe to know their Brahmanical observances and be able to do those rituals and things like that. And um, so they, they have an argument and they can't, one can't convince the other. So they decide to go see the Buddha and ask him, the Buddha, they think, is uh, you know well respected. He's wise, and and certainly he'll have some good things to say about this. And so they ask him that question. 
They say, a dispute has arisen between us over the doctrine of birth. One of us says, one is a Brahmin by birth. But I say one is a Brahmin by action, by what one does. Um, Since neither of us is able to convince the other, we've come to ask you, sir, widely famed to be enlightened. So um, the Buddha says, I will clearly explain this to you. I will explain it to you both in proper sequence as they are, the generic divisions of living beings, for their kinds differ from one another. So he's going to uh, describe kind of how each, uh, the different species of beings are unique and special to themselves, and they differentiated by species, kind of. And um, some people actually translate what follows uh, with the word species to distinguish them. And he begins by talking about the grasses and trees. Know the grasses and trees as well, though they do not even make any claims for themselves. They can't speak for themselves. Their distinctive mark is produced by birth. In other words, what makes them distinctive, uh, their characteristic, is it comes along with being born in as particular kinds of trees, particular kinds of plants. For th- and their kinds, their different, their varieties, their types, uh, differ from one another. So they have lots of different species. Next come the moth and the butterflies. Even through the various kinds of ants, their distinctive mark is produced by their birth. Uh, for their kinds differ from one another. Then know the four-footed beings, both small and large. Their distinctive mark is produced by birth. Their kinds differ from one another. Know that those whose bellies are their feet, that is, the serpents, um, those long-backed creatures, their distinctive mark is produced by birth, for their kinds differ from one another. Know, too, the fish that dwell in water. Next, the birds who fly with their wings in the sky. Uh, so he's going through all these beings and saying their distinctive mark is made by birth. Because of the repetition of it, the contrast of what he's going to say probably stands out in this oral culture in which he was teaching before. It's almost like a song that's being being um, being spoken. Um, um, while among the many kinds of beings, their distinctive marks are determined by birth, among humans, there are no distinctive marks produced by their particular birth. Or to say it may be in plain English, uh, it's a little hard to know exactly how to translate this into English, the Pali, but uh, there's no sp- species differentiation. There's no uh, significant dif- differences uh, produced by human being that distinguishes one person as being superior to someone else, one person a Brahmin over someone else, based on how they're born. Not by the hairs or the head, not by the ears or the eyes, not by the mouth or the nose, not by the lips or the brow, not by the, not by the neck or the shoulders, not by the belly or the back, not by the buttocks or the breast, not by the anus or the genitals, not by the hands or the feet, nor by the fingers or nails, not by the knees or the thighs, nor by their color or voice. Birth does not make a distinctive mark as it does with other kinds of beings. 
So there's no no characteristic that we're born with that separates us out from other human beings as being better or superior from others and makes us a Brahmin. Um, separately among human beings, nothing distinctive is found in their bodies. So of course we know there's lots of differences in people's bodies, but there's no uh, inherent distinction that is the source or the reason to uh, classify people as being superior or inferior. Then he makes an interesting statement. Classification among human beings is spoken of by designation. So um, it's by convention, by designation, by con- the constructs of the mind that uh, we classify people in particular ways. And as soon as you call it a designation, then it becomes a product of the mind and culture and not anything inherent. And so classification of people is, has some usefulness, but it's always going to be somewhat fragile. It's always, since it is a designation, it's just, an, it's just a concept that's overlain on top of human beings. It's, uh, it's provisional, it's contextual. Um, it's something which doesn't really fit uh, you know, 100% all the time. And so how to be wise about the conventions, the designations, the concept by which we understand each other. Um, so the Buddha then is going to say a little bit more about his orientation around this kind of idea. Um, the, humans, the humans who live by husbandry, you should know as farmers. Those who earn their living through crafts, you should know as a craftsperson. Those who live by trade, know them as a merchant. Those who live serving others, you should know as a servant. Those who live by stealing, you should know as a thief. Those among human beings who earn their living by archery, know them as a warrior. Those uh, who live by priestly service know them as a priest. And those who rule over a village and realm know them as a king. And none of these, he says, are a Brahmin. So here he's saying that Buddha's orientation is to classify people as a designation for people by their roles, by what they do. Remember, one of the arguments of the two Brahmins was people are Brahmin by their action. And here, Buddha says, by their action is what we call people. That means that it only really applies when they're doing that action. Um, That's when it really makes sense. And people change what they do and, in a sense, change their roles. Um, A significant moment with my first Zen teacher I was talking about my relationship to my father, and uh, and he said to me that, "Oh, your father, uh, your father was a human being uh, before he was your father, uh, before you were born." And it, the way he said it was like, "Oh, don't only see this person who's your father through the lens of being a father. This person has a whole other way of being in the world, that's uh, kind of free of being a father, just being a person in a different kind of way." And that kind of gave me a different perspective. And I realized how much I had uh, taken, certainly my father acted like a father, like you're supposed to if you're a father, I suppose. And uh, so it makes sense to call him a father. But 
someone is a father when they're fathering. Someone is a a worker when they're working. Someone is a barber when they're barbering. Someone is a, a, a you know a cook when they're cooking. And so, uh, and then people can shift to these roles, shift these activities, and in a sense, take on different designation, different names for them. That's a little bit how the, the Buddha sees it. But all of that, all of that is not, does not make a person a Brahmin. So now the, the Buddha is going to say, this is what makes a Brahmin. So rather than, rather than um, jettison, throwing away this concept they had in ancient India of the Brahmin, as somehow being worthy of respect, or I don't know if superior is what the Buddha would say, but worthy of respect or having some kind of value, special value. Rather than throwing that notion away, he redefined it in his own way, in his, for his own purposes. And this is how he said it. Um, I do not call someone a Brahmin based on genealogy or maternal birth. Um, um, one who, without hatred, endures insults, attacks, and bondage, whose power is patience, that is the one I call a Brahmin. One who is without anger, observant of good behavior, uh, tamed, that is the one I call a Brahmin. One who understands right here the destruction of suffering for oneself. That is the one I call a Brahmin. One who, having put down weapons towards all beings frail and firm, is the one I call a Brahmin. Not hostile among the hostile, uh, peaceful among those who have taken up weapons, not taking not taking among those who take, not killing or making others kill. That is the one I call a Brahmin. One who, one from whom lust and hatred, conceit, have dropped away. That is the one I call a Brahmin. One who utters no rough speech, whose speech is articulate and truthful. Uh, by which he does not hurt one does not hurt anyone that is the one i call a brahmin one here who does not take anything in the world not given that is the one i call a brahmin one here who has abandoned craving who wanders without a home with craving and existence destroyed that is the one i call a brahmin so many of these factors that the buddha calls make someone a brahmin has to do with their ethical behavior, their action. And uh, these, pa- these passages appear in a number of places in the suttas, both in the Dhammapada and the Sutta Nipata. So they must have been popular in the ancient world. And um, the, um, so it's people's ethics, ethical behavior that the Buddha is emphasizing. And this is over and over again. Uh, this is what the, what the Buddha is emphasizing. And some of the arguments he makes for why shouldn't he take those who are born into the Brahmin caste class as being bra- real Brahmins, it has to do with their ethics. That uh, some of them kill and steal and, and uh, lie and do all kinds of things 
and some of them don't. Some of the people in different uh, uh, classes of society at that time lived very ethically. And whoever lived ethically, that was the Brahmin. Even if there was a so the society put them at the lowest class, the Buddha wasn't going to see it that way. Uh, he saw them as being worthy and valuable human beings. That, um, and uh, so much so that when the Buddha created a monastic community, um, in the community at community there was no differentiation between those who were of uh, who came into the monastic community from the Brahmin class from the ruling class, from the merchant class, from the worker class, any class of life people came from, they were folded in and they had equal uh, role, status, importance, position there. And it must have been quite remarkable in the ancient world uh, to come from a place where there were these social divisions and come together into a community where those divisions had evaporated and people lived together without seeing those distinctions. And... um, so, um, I'm going to read a little bit more from here. Um, For whom name and clan ascribed to one are a designation in the world, having originated by convention, they are ascribed here and there. Here again, this uh, this insight into there's nothing in the, in the natural world in terms of status and, and positions and places of people, you know, of, of people, that um, uh, is inherent. But these are designations, and we know that in this, you know, that uh, these horrible uh, ways of racism, um, race, in all kinds of ways, was a designation, was an invention that then got kind of, uh, so, kind of such a solidified so strongly, especially in the United States. That it's uh, hundreds, of, hundreds of years of racism. It's difficult to shake off the, the, um, the strength of these concepts, these designations, and um, even people who uh, we know now who consciously um, uh, don't live by these designations. There's a con- all, and have inherited from a culture all kinds of unconscious and subliminal ways in which um, we still kind of live in this bifurcated societies of where there is uh, people are put in different positions and prejudice and bias is, is a regular experience for them. One is not a Brahmin by birth, nor by birth a non-Brahmin. By action one becomes a Brahmin, by action one becomes a non-Brahmin. So that is how the wise see action as it really is. Seers of dependent origination, skilled in action and its result. So, skilled in dependent origination means that they're really skilled in seeing how things occur and exist, independence on conditions that come together. That there's nothing really inherent in anything that um, that is that doesn't uh, change, doesn't um, uh, disappear, doesn't come and go. And because of that, they become skilled in action. The Buddha was uh, sometimes uh, referred to as a teacher of action because it, uh, for the Buddha it was so important um, that action was the way to liberation. It, it kind of more and more refined kind of action, more and more peaceful kind of action, way of living that led to freedom. 
But action, how we live, is what defines, in a sense, and for the Buddha, the, the worth of a human being. And, um, and uh, the most worthy human being are those who live most ethically. And, uh, and those are the ones he calls a Brahmin. And um, then he goes on to say, by action the world goes around. By action this generation of people spin around. Sentient beings are, are fastened, tied up by their actions, uh, which is like the linchpin of a moving chariot. By the spiritual life, by self-control and inner taming, by this one becomes a Brahmin. This is supreme Brahmanhood. So I don't know how this uh, sounds to some of you. I mean, uh, to me it's a little bit jarring uh, to put anyone, you know, claim that any individual is, is a Brahmin, is kind of more worthy than anybody else. And... Um, but it's certainly a very powerful uh, critique the Buddha had on the 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 racism or the classism um, uh, that existed at his time, and uh, very powerful um, teaching that still resonates in India to this day among many people uh, as a way of uh, kind of. Um, uh, stepping away from the caste system. In 1950s, there was a doctor named Abenkar, one of the few people who, in my studies when I was younger, I thought had the, the moral stature, or moral integrity or something, to be critical of Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi was one of my heroes, so it's a big thing to say that Abedkar was one of the few people that, I, well, if he has a critique, I, I, I'll listen and um, he belonged to the, uh, back then, the um, untouchable class, this lowest caste in India. And in 1954, I think, um, after a big search for a religion that wouldn't promote this caste system that Hinduism seemed to have promoted in India, he landed on Buddhism, and he, uh, he did these mass conversions of the untouchables into Buddhism because Buddhism was so clearly... Uh, Buddha was cl- so clearly um, breaking down these caste divisions, and, and he was emphasizing ethics. And um, so, as I said, I feel a little uncomfortable by this idea of the Brahmin, but um, I love the idea that uh, uh, you know to break down these divisions and to emphasize uh, our our ethical life, our good ethics a life of harmlessness and dedication to not stealing and killing and lying as being a common ground in which these divisions can break down and soften. And rather than thinking of ourselves as higher or better than anybody else because of that, um, maybe uh, it frees us from thinking in uh, any kind of uh, higher, lesser uh, language at all but rather to have kind of simplicity and openness and uh, to respect anyone uh, or to be able to look on everyone as a friend, uh, supporting everyone to kind of maybe discover that in our hearts, in our core, um, deep inside, 
is an ethical nature, a life that want, a heart that wants to live harmlessly, and that all the ways that we humans cause harm really come from more of a superficial, surface area of our life that uh, falls away when we settle deep down into ourselves. And uh, and so that's part of the role for meditation, to to shed this you know, superficial, and uh, settle into what's deep, the place, the origin for a life of ethics and goodness that dissolves, where we can maybe contribute to dissolving uh, these painful divisions in our society of uh, some people being better than, superior of, more equal than others. It's needed in these times just as much as it's needed in the times of the Buddha. Thank you.